Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Do you hear that? Listen closely. Can you hear that? You don't hear that? You got to really listen closely. Listen. It's a call coming from Indiana. And the call is, come back to Indiana. Come back to Indiana. Please come back to Indiana. Come to the youth conference that was held in Indiana in the summer of 2022. Come back. Please come back. We miss you so much. Come back. Okay. It's not an actual call. I'm having a little bit of fun, but yes, it is time once again for us to go back to Indiana to a youth conference that was held in the summer of 2022 as we continue our series on trying to figure out exactly what should we be teaching young people in 2022? What should we be teaching the youth in 2022? But with all of that said, let's do a proper introduction. Welcome, everyone. It is Friday, September the 16th, 2022. It is currently 12.56 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central Studios located right here in Abilene, Texas. And there's a very important principle, and it goes like this. Whenever, whenever you receive a call from Indiana, don't pick up the phone, okay? Don't pick up the phone. Whenever they, whenever you get a call from Indiana, just ignore the phone. Just run away. Turn off the phone. Smash the phone. Throw the phone in water. Burn it. Just get away from it because it's bad. Okay, I'm having a little bit of fun, but yes, we've been reviewing these sermons from this youth conference and uh, that was held in Indiana. Someone uh, said just a few minutes ago that listening to these sermons from this youth conference is going to help them develop a seizure disorder, and I, 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 I already have a seizure disorder, and I think it's I think, yeah, no, 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 no. Someone just said uh, Indiana rocks. No, 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 it, it rocks. I, I don't know what it rocks, but it's not rocking theology. It's not rocking biblical hermeneutics. It's not, it's rocking heresy, I guess. I don't know what you call it. I'm not trying to be mean, but ladies and gentlemen, these messages have been difficult to, to even quite understand what's their point. But it's time to go back to Indiana. It's time. And I've got it queued up. I'm ready to go. Now, a couple of things. Remember, these reviews always take longer than I think, (laughs) but they always take a long time. So you have to be prepared for that. So you may want to make sure you have something to drink, maybe some food, okay? Uh, maybe an IV. I don't know what you may need. You may need to make sure that you're you're in a safe location, that if you do have a seizure, you, you won't hurt yourself too much. I don't know what you need. You may need blood pressure medication. I don't know. Get all of your supplies ready right now. And yes, obviously have a Bible open, obviously a notebook. And uh, those who are listening live, we do have quite a few listening live. That's good. Um, feel free to add your thoughts, your your, maybe because you may hear something that I don't hear, or I may start saying something and you may be like, no, you're missing his point. You're missing his point. Please correct me because, you know, I'm, I'm reacting in real time for those who are brand new to this. 
I don't listen to what we review in advance because I don't like it to come across as rehearsed and like, ooh, I went and found a really bad sermon that I can bash. The hope always is, is that we're going to hear something good. And I try my best. I try to be fair, but I do try to find something positive from it. It's just these have been so irritating because these sermons are preached in a very specific context. They got all of these youth gathered, hundreds, hundreds. I mean, that, that's a, that church can hold a lot of people. They got this place packed out with young people. And I'm like, okay, if I had an audience of 500 teenagers or, or 600, what, what would be the three key things I would want to present to them and so far, I can't even really tell you what they've emphasized. I, I don't even really know. It's like, hey, you will never be happy until you get married. But stop thinking about getting married. Just live with the fact that you're never going to be happy. I don't know. That was uh, then the whole Act 16 thing, which was like, what in the world is going on? It's, it's been a wild ride. So buckle up. Here we go. Indiana, summer of 2022. Young people are present. Someone's standing behind the pulpit. They have a Bible open. Where are we going to go? What's going to happen? None of us knows, but we're going to enjoy this together. All right. Did I give you enough time to get all of your supplies? Are you ready? Are you ready? Okay. You okay? You got good? You got Got, got a pillow. Maybe you put pillows all around your chair. Maybe you just want to listen laying down on the floor. That's where you 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 have you don't have that far to fall. You, you're already right there. Okay. What I'm what I'm going to do is I'm going to, going to record this laying on the floor. That's what I'm going. No, okay. I'm joking. Right here we go. And I want you to listen carefully. Take your Bibles, if you would, please. I want you to turn to the Book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1. While you're turning, I'm going to read. Yes, we're making it really far. I do have a question. Well, I mean, you can just ask yourself this question because this is just more just from my own like teaching and preaching perspective. Whenever um, a pastor says to turn to a certain book, right? Turn to the Gospel of John, uh, turn to 1 Corinthians, or turn to the book of Jonah. When, when, when Do you have a tendency that like a certain idea, a certain concept just immediately comes to your mind, just like immediately comes to your mind? And do you think that that sometimes may hinder, like, do you think it somehow kind of gives you a prejudice towards the book, right? Like, okay, he's, oh, we're getting ready to preach from Romans. We're going to preach from the, and does a certain kind of, is, is it possible that because you're so familiar, you're like, oh, I know where this is going. And then that can possibly hinder your ability to really appreciate what you're getting ready to hear because you're so familiar. I guess it's that concept, familiarity breeds contempt, right? So I'm pretty familiar with Jonah. I think we all are. We've all heard the story a thousand different ways. So when he says, turn to Jonah, I'm just, I can't, I can't speak for you, but there was a little bit of me that kind of went, okay, young people, you're running from the will of God, or you're going to be swallowed by a big fish. Now I'm not saying that that's not, I'm not saying that that kind of sermon would be wrong, but I, is it because I'm so familiar with it that I don't like, is that a bad reaction? Uh, Oh wait, am I confessing? Wait, is this microphone live? Okay, wait, I'm not supposed to say these things. I'm just being honest, right? That there's just sometimes when I hear 
I get ready to listen to a sermon. They're like, turn to this book. I'm like, oh man, because I, sometimes I feel like I already know where it's going, but I should not do that. I should be like, oh, Jonah, word of God, inspired, infallible, profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for the, instru- for the instruction and in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto all good work, to every good work. That, that's how I should perceive it, that it's the word of God. I should, I should not perceive it as, oh no, I know where this is going. Oh no, I know this. That's, it always bothers me when I feel that. But in this particular case, there was a little bit of, man, Jonah, really? Now, maybe he's going to take it in a completely different direction, but it's just like young people in the book of Jonah. You just, it just seems like this is going to write itself. But I am interested that while you're turning to Jonah, he's going to quote from Ezekiel. Hmm. Isn't that what he said? I think that's what he said. If I if I was incorrect there, but I think that's what he said. That has me a little intrigued. That's a little intriguing. Okay, all right. Let, let's see where it's going to go. A verse from Ezekiel. God used Ezekiel, and God said to Ezekiel, "Say unto them, as I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way." And live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. For why will ye die, O house of Israel? It's a profound verse of Scripture. God's, God is blatantly saying, one, those that are wicked are going to die and go to hell. But I, that's not what I want. I don't want the wicked to die and go to hell. I want All right, I know I'm not supposed to do this. I know this is not good church etiquette. But whenever I hear a preacher saying, God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. I understand, but I'm sorry, I'm going to be the one. I'm not saying I would do it in the middle of the sermon. I'm not saying I would do it in the middle of the Sunday school classroom. Maybe when I was younger. But at some point, I would have to be like, make sure we, I would have to talk to the pastor and go, okay, so God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. All right. So let me make sure I've got this all figured out. All right. So the eternal God, who is all knowing and all powerful, doesn't want anyone to go to hell, but he created a world knowing people would go to hell. He created a world in which he knew sin would enter said world. In fact, he created hell. (laughs) In fact, he created Satan who would bring sin into the world. But but, but no, no, he doesn't want anyone to go. He's like, don't, don't, go, 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 go. But as soon as I read in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, he's creating the very place where he knows that people are going to go to hell. And just, just, just remember this. If he would have ended the world one year, 10 years, 15 years, 100 years, 200 years after creation, 500 years after creation, there would be far less people in hell than there are now that we've reached 2022. The longer that the life continues, the more people who will go to hell. So he doesn't want anyone to go to hell, but he just keeps the world going and 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 more people are born, more people die. More people are born, more people die. More people are born, more people die. 
I, I, I know that like you, if you even bring up these questions, Christians get very upset. They get upset. They're like, they get mad. They get angry. And it's like, I don't get emotional. We just have to deal with this concept in the most non-emotional way possible. Eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful God, hell exists and people go to hell. You're telling me God never wanted it to happen. Was never a part of the plan. And that he lost complete control of the situation. It just, it just like, he was like, oh no, oh no, I got to make a place called hell, but I didn't really want anyone to go there. How did this happen? Well, I don't know. It started with you created an angelic being named Satan. And then when he fell, you didn't destroy him. You let him come to earth. And then when Adam and Eve sinned, you didn't kill them. You let them produce children who had a sinful nature. And then you let them produce children and you let them produce children and you let them produce children. You could have stopped it at any point in time. He could have just stopped human beings ability to produce children. I mean, there, there's lots of questions there, but I understand. So now I, now I think I know which direction he's going to take this. Let's see. Let's see. But I, I, I know asking that question creates like people get so mad, but look, don't get mad. That is a reasonable question. That is a rational, reasonable question. That's not the question from, uh, that's not a question that proves someone is an atheist, that is an agnostic, someone who doesn't love God. That's a question uh, every person who can read their Bible reading, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, should immediately start asking some serious questions. Especially when you find out that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, if we want to use the theological terms, you, you've, if you don't have these questions, I, I need to talk to you to figure out how you don't have these questions, okay? Because you've got some superpower that I don't possess. I want them to be saved. And we take a look at the world sometimes like, well, if they don't get it, that's just their fault. That's just too bad. We take a, an attitude that somebody else will do it. An apprehension that I can't do it. Or I'm afraid. It's somebody else's job, not mine. Look in Jonah chapter 1 and follow along with me as I read. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. So now you have a definite command, a definite word from God, right? In verse 3 it says, But Jonah rose up to flee into Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea and there was a mighty tempest in the sea so that the ship was like to be broken. Then the mariners were afraid and cried every man to his God and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. So the shipmaster came unto him and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God. If so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. And they said, Every one to his fellow, Come and let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, 
for whose cause this evil is upon us? Why? What is thine occupation? And whence comest thou? What is thy country? And of what people art thou? And he said unto them, I am a Hebrew, and I will fear the Lord, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. Then were the men exceedingly afraid, and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. They said unto him, What shall we do to thee, that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea wrought and was tempestuous. Father, we ask your presence upon this next few minutes. And Father, may this story and your word and this preacher stir the hearts of young people to have a broader picture of this world than just themselves. May they see the world through a telescope and not through a mirror. May they look at others as if they were somebody one day walking on their way to hell. Help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Here you have just a unique story, one of the most unique stories in the Bible. We all know the ending. But the beginning of it is somewhat tragic. You had a man that was a Hebrew... And uh, if I may, quite a, I think, uh, very much a racist even, if by today's standards. He didn't care about those in Nineveh. He didn't like the people of Nineveh. He didn't care if they got saved or went to hell. That wasn't, that wasn't part of his thinking. He just cared about his people, his own. But if you look at what we read in Ezekiel, it's God's vision and God's will that everybody find Jesus Christ. God's son died for every single person. It doesn't matter color, doesn't matter country, doesn't matter status. Every person in this world deserves a chance to hear the story of Jesus Christ. Young people, look at me and listen carefully. There's roughly 1,500 to 2,000 young people and workers in this room right now. If every one of us spent a lifetime winning people to Jesus Christ, it may be just a scratch in the bucket kind of thing. But I'm telling you right now, heaven, heaven would be a lot fuller and a lot brighter. But we, uh, we... all right. So this is the way it goes down. This is a uh, this is pretty common in this kind of theological circle. All right. Here's the situation. If you don't win people to Christ. Those people may, will not be in heaven, but if you do, they will. So in other words, if it's, it's the salvation of people is dependent upon you, all right? Now, just a couple of things. First and foremost, let's remember, we don't just win someone to Christ, right? Because that seems to imply that if I come up with the right techniques, I can win. But if those people, if, let's go with this idea, which I know they would operate from, libertarian free will. If someone has a complete free will, then it's my job to try to manipulate that will, trick that will, do whatever I can to supposedly win them. Or is it my job simply to present the message to them and then let them use their free will, right? Am I to manipulate it, coerce it? Trick it, or am I just to say, here's the gospel, your will. Nobody, no, no, no one should do anything to override your will. 
Now, because the concept is God wants everyone to be saved, but he can't mess with someone's will. Now, I find it find interesting that you're using the book of Jonah, where clearly Jonah's will is irrelevant to God, okay? Jonah's will is, I want to go on a cruise. I want to go hang out on the deck, and I want to stay away from doing whatever you're telling me to do. And God's like, sorry, your will doesn't matter. My will's going to be done. So how can God override Jonah's will? and make sure that what he wants to happen happens. But when it comes to the salvation of people, he can't. It's just, I find it sometimes hilarious. So, but uh, this is, this is a teaching that definitely is, I I was definitely hit with it hard when I was a teenager. Basically, I'll never forget. It was a massive traumatic experience for a number of us who were, we were all brand new Christians, relatively new Christians. And the emphasis in that church was not doctrine. The emphasis in that church wasn't theology. It was like, you've got to win other people to Christ. You've got to win other people to Christ. If they go to hell, it's on you, right? And then someone in our school got drunk one Friday night and drinking and driving. He died. A couple of other kids in the car died. It was a big, tragic, horrible, horrible, horrible story, especially for a little, 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 little small school. I mean, you know, what, how many people were in my graduating class? What, 20, 30 people? I mean, it was, it was, you know, not, uh, it was a, it was a pretty tragic thing. And I remember at least a number of the kids in the youth group kept waking up at night, um, months later with these horrible nightmares that these kids were in hell screaming, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me? Because we were basically told they, if they went to hell, it's because you didn't win them to Christ. And it, that is a, an overwhelming sense of, of, of guilt. And I know it's common. There's going to be people listening to this going, well, they were right. It was your fault. You should have witnessed to them. But the, but the concept is, so wait a minute. All, even all I could do is present the, if you believe in free will, I couldn't get them saved. I could just simply present the gospel to them. That's all I could do. But they're like, no, you've got to win them. You've got to do it. And and then if you don't believe in free will, then it's God. Now, I do believe he uses the preaching and teaching of his word, and I do believe we have a responsibility. But the best you can say is our responsibility is to tell, not the responsibility to win, because winning, if you believe in free will, is dependent upon the will of the other person. And if you don't believe in free will, it's dependent upon the sovereign work of God. So, but it's just kind of interesting the direction he's going to go here. We live in a day and time to where we think, not even cautiously, but we just boldly think of ourselves. This is what I want to do. This is where I want to go. This is the occupation I want to have. This is the money I want to make. This is the lifestyle I want to live. Let somebody else do that. I grew up in a large family, and we all pulled our weight. We all worked. When there was a job to do around the house or in the yard, we all had to, had to pitch in. My neighbors came over and were waiting for me and Dave and Pete. We were closest in age, two of my brothers. And, uh, and they came over to get us to go play baseball or play basketball or go swimming. And uh, we always had chores that we had to finish first. And my mom usually was in the midst of us doing chores, weeding the garden, which I hated with a passion, but we all had to do it. And I remember my, my buddies, and they would stand there, and they would say, all right, we'll wait for you. That never went well with my mother. And my mother had the unique ability and the unique skill of sucking you in. 
And my friends learned after a few times of coming to visit me and get me to go play baseball that, you know, it was better off to wait at home until I was done than wait in my yard. Because within a few minutes, they were on their knees pulling weeds out of the beans. They were picking tomatoes. They were, they were tilling the ground. And uh, yes, we got our work done a lot faster, but me and my brothers, we always laughed. It, they, it's like they never learned. But we, uh, we never were allowed to stand around and watch somebody else work. We were never allowed, if something was going on, you pitched in. It didn't matter if you had good clothes on or, or, or blue jeans. You got, you got your hands dirty. You got involved. And the story of Jonah always grieved me. I've not really been a fan of Jonah, and my guess is when I get to heaven, I'll be very proud of him. But the fact is, I just never enjoyed hearing his story that he would... When you get to heaven, you're going to be proud of Jonah? Can, can we be proud of anyone in heaven? Th- those in heaven are not to be, we are to be proud of them. They're just simply instruments used by God because of God's grace and mercy. I don't know. Just an interesting phrase. I say weird phrases all the time in my preaching, so I'm not being critical. It's just jumped out at me. Like, we're going to be proud. I, I hope no one, I just, don't, I just don't think we have anything to boast of, anything to be proud about. That's just my own. Maybe it's just because I realize that how messed up I am. Run away instead of running to. Then to top it all off, he gets on this boat and the storm comes. And instead of helping the mariners, he goes and he hides himself in the bottom of the ship and he falls asleep. How many of you are, you're a sound sleeper? Raise your hand. All right. I am a sound sleeper. I can sleep on a rock. And I mean that. I have. And uh, I, uh, I get on an airplane, and usually before the wheels are up, you know, I am asleep. And I mean that. They, and uh, they, uh, about mid-flight, I wake up, and I do some work, but generally I can sleep the whole wherever. My wife and I were in China. It was a 14-hour flight home. The plane was barely full and, and lots of room. And, and uh, within three or four minutes... I laid down on the seats because uh, uh, there wasn't any, many people on the plane, and I fell asleep. I woke up almost 14 hours later. We were coming in over Wisconsin into O'Hare. And I looked up. I said, we almost home. My wife was just sitting there just glaring at me because she can't sleep on an airplane. And uh, she tries, and she can't. So for 14 hours, she entertained herself and uh, with most folks that didn't speak English. But the truth is, here you have these mariners now that were freaking out. They, the storm was going on. Jonah in the bottom of that ship, sleeping, fast asleep, riding the storm out in somewhat of comfort and ease. While mariners were throwing their future, their wares, their money, their, their goods that they were taking to sell. They were throwing those overboard just to lighten the ship of its load so it would not sail heavily. And finally, they go down and begin to wake him. And the shipmaster comes to him and says, What meanest thou? Can you imagine your mother coming and saying, What are you doing? What do you think you're doing? And he called him and he said, Oh, sleeper. Oh, sleeper. Arise, call upon thy God, if it so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. How sad it is that the heathen had to go 
to a Christian to beg him for his God. And we all think that everybody in this world who wants to get saved, they need to come knock on our door and ask us. And that would be nice. That would be nice. It would save a lot of fuel and time and effort if everybody just came to our homes and came to church and uh, asked us, what must I do to be saved? But God's plan for people to be saved is for us to go out. It's for us to tell. It's for us to carry tracts. It's for us to preach the gospel and to win people to Christ. He never intended us for, for us to lay asleep on a Saturday morning or on a, on a Sunday afternoon and, and uh, just lay there until somebody comes and wakes us up and say, Hey, how do I get saved? Hi, so we shouldn't be sleeping in on a Saturday morning or sleeping on a Sunday afternoon. Then why were you asleep for 14 hours on an airplane with other people on the airplane? There was no one to talk to, no tracks to hand. I mean, I mean, I just, I, I, I just always get a little bothered by this. And here's the reason why. I'll just give you an example one time where I got really, really, really frustrated because I've heard this kind of like guilt. It's almost like a guilt trip. Wait, you sleep in on Saturday morning? People are dying and going to hell. Get up and go out there. And then they tell a story of them doing something. But here's an example. All right, so it was, I don't remember all the things that were going on, but people were upset with Chick-fil-A because of them giving money possibly to pro-family anti-LGBTQ organizations. And everybody was upset. So Christians were like, we're going to support Chick-fil-A. The battle is on. We've got to stand against the gay culture. Everyone go buy a chicken sandwich, right? So Christians were lined up. It was a big deal. I don't know if it happened in every state, but here in Texas, everybody's got to go buy a chicken sandwich to show support to Christianity or, well, just make Chick-fil-A rich. But okay, we're taking a stand for Jesus by getting a Chick-fil-A sandwich, right? Whatever, nuggets or whatever you want to get from Chick-fil-A. And and I was kind of like, really? Well, that, that's what we're going to do? We're going to prove some point by going to, to buy, we're going to buy a, a, a Chick-fil-A sandwich and we're going to prove some, I, something. I, and it just, I didn't understand it. I always hate the Christian culture war and what was, what, what's the next cause we have to go fight. It just always just drives me crazy, right? I mean, the last thing we need to do is try to prove something by getting a Chick-fil-A sandwich. What we need to do is, I mean, if you want to focus on it, get the gospel to people, right? That's what we should be focused on. But okay, whatever. So I think I made some derogatory comment about it or something like, this is just ridiculous, whatever. And uh, my daughter made like a similar comment, like on Facebook. She was like, well, this is just crazy. This is just like, what, what, what are Christians doing? This is nuts. And, and um, all, all of a sudden, uh, someone, uh, someone who used to be in our church had never interacted. I don't even think they even had, they didn't even have a Facebook account. I, I don't think they didn't follow me. They didn't follow her. They had no, they never had any interaction with us on Facebook in any way, shape or form. He gets on his wife's Facebook account to attack my daughter and saying, instead of spending your time on Facebook attacking Christians, what you should be do, what you should be doing is out there evangelizing to people because people are dying and going to hell. Which my daughter responded with, well, maybe what you should do is get off Facebook attacking me and go out there and tell people they need Jesus because they're going to hell. Like anytime you try to tell, hey, you shouldn't be sleeping or you shouldn't be doing this because you need to be out there witnessing is literally, I guarantee you, at some point, it's going to come back on you. So should we just 
Hey, nobody sleep in. No, we only eat one meal a day and we don't watch any TV. And we, and all we do is witness is, is that, I mean, now you can make that argument, but I'm just saying to, if you're going to place that burden and that level of commitment on others, you have to then place it upon yourself. He just told a story of sleeping for 14 hours on a plane. Why didn't he spend 14 hours praying for the lost? His wife stayed up for 14 hours. I mean, like, like you can always, like, why didn't you look for anyone around you that you could possibly talk to? I mean, like, like, you know, like there's so many, you know, why weren't you, I don't know, spending 14 hours if you had a, a Wi-Fi connection, 14 hours on the computer talking to people on social media about Jesus. I mean, like you can always make an argument. I mean, there's always that argument to be made, but it, I, I'm just not a fan of this kind of like, you should be doing this. You should be doing this. I don't know if that makes any sense to anybody else, but I just, I've, I've heard this thing used so many, well, while you, while you're, while you're on, I, I, I had people make, say things about me in my previous podcasting world, uh, when it was more news-based, what well, you spend all your time on a microphone talking about these kinds of things, you should be out there telling people about Jesus. And I'm like, well, while you're spending the time e- emailing me, telling me that I need to be talking to people about Jesus, why aren't you talking to people about Jesus? <laughs> It's like, like, it's just such an odd, like, it's like, I'm going to use a guilt trip and it, 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 that guilt trip can get thrown right back on you really, 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 really quick. That would be a wonderful thing, but it's not going to happen. And if it does, I've only had one person in all of my life come up to me and say, you know what, you go to that church in Hammond, don't you? And I said, I did. And he said, listen, how does somebody really know how they're going to heaven? And I thought he was messing with me. But he really wanted to know. It's the only person out of the hundreds and hundreds that I've led to Christ that has ever asked me what must I do to be saved. But of all the rest that I've led to Christ, I went out after him. I went on a drive. I knocked on their door. I stepped out of my comfort zone and handed them a track and asked if I could explain that to them. As Christians, we're waiting for the unsaved to come to us, acting like it's their fault if they don't get saved. Yes, it may be if they've heard the gospel, but if they've not, you know, it's our job to at least tell them. Young people, I'm looking at a generation of young people who are asleep today. And scripturally and and spiritually, you're laying in bed right now hoping somebody else will do it because you're not going to. You may love God and you may love the Christian life, but you're just not going to tell somebody. That apprehension has gone past apprehension. You just don't want to do it. Yes, Jonah had great apprehension about going to Nineveh. He had great apprehension about preaching to a people that he knew were vile and knew were wicked and knew would probably make fun of him. And he didn't want them to get saved anyhow. But he was at a point to where I'm just not going. And he paid money to go the opposite direction. And the mariners break him and, and come down to him and they, they cast lots and they found out that it was him. And then all of a sudden he was revealed, he was revealed that he was the one God was chasing and that people were going to die because of him. And I want to tell you, young men, look at me, fellas. I don't care how skilled in sports you are. I don't care how many brains you got in your head. I don't care how, what your goals are in life. If you're not telling people about Jesus Christ, those people are going to see you again one day 
And they may or they may not remember you, but there are friends of yours that you're going to see, and they're going to look at you and say, Hey, what meanest thou, O sleeper? All right. This is the, I heard this so much growing up, that when you die, when you die, and the judgment occurs, there's going to be those lost people who you knew and they're going to look at you and they're going to like, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you convince me? I'm about to burn for eternity and it's all your fault. Why didn't you tell me? You may, you may be in full agreement with this kind of approach. I have some, I mean, man, you talk about some psychological damage you can do to some young people. Some psychological damage you can do to young people. Mm. I, I wonder where this concept arises, where, where and at the judgment, there's going to be people and they're going to look at you and go, why, 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 why? Logically, couldn't I turn to God and go, you got Jonah to Nineveh. Why didn't you bring someone to that person? If you overcame Jonah's will to get him to Nineveh, why didn't you overcome my will to get them to them? Isn't that a logical question? I mean, hey, there's people out there who need Jesus. And if you don't tell them, they're going to die and go to hell. Okay. And, and so I, they're going to be saying, why didn't you tell me? Well, according to what you see here, if God wants someone to deliver a message, he's going to get the person to the people who need the message, right? Why didn't you tell me? All of this about Christianity. I wondered why you went to church. I wonder why you dressed that way. I wonder why you live a life like you live. Why? Why didn't you just tell me about that? Well, maybe because if I did, you would have rejected me or we'd have lost a friendship. It would have been worth a shot. It would have been worth a shot. Arise, O sleeper. Your church needs you. Our churches today need young people that, that are, not are, are not awoke, they're awakened. They're not asleep. They're looking at this institution of your church that, that, that have called out believers that is a central location in your community. And as Brother Judah and Brother Josh had already said, that teenage soul winning program that you may have or don't have in your church needs to be vibrant. It needs to be alive. It needs to be awakened out of its sleep. It's boring. It's not working. You're not prepared for it. It's just- I, I got to jump in here. So many of the so-called youth soul winning programs instituted by churches, not saying all, but many of them have one gigantic, horrific, psychologically damaging flaw. And that is... The young people are made to go by mom and dad. The kid is embarrassed. He doesn't want to go out knocking doors. He doesn't want to be handing out tracks. And he's forced to do so and go through that embarrassment 
even though he doesn't want to. And it's not because he's he and it, it could just be the, just typical teenage intimidation and and always worried about what people are thinking and just going through that embarrassment. Look, if the teenager doesn't want to go out there doing it, then by all means, you can preach your theology and your doctrine and teach the teenager in Sunday school youth group from the pulpit that it's his responsibility to go out there and do so. But when parents make the kids go door to door, they make the kids hand out track. They force the kids into these situations that when, when you are being forced to witness by parental mandate, that is, that is messed up. That is just jacked up. There's no, there's no other way for that. Don't force your kids to do that. If they want to participate, then by all means, you encourage them and do everything you can that they, they that, to get them there and whatever they need. But let them do so, all right? Don't force the kids. That, that's, just, that's just messed up. That's just me- messed up uh, because um, it, it, it's, I mean, you've got to overcome your own depending on the, on the type of kid, like I, again, I, I've talked about it before that when I, I was a teenager, um, and I, I, on my way to Cisco junior college, um, I drove past on the way there and on the way back, uh, the Abilene Taylor County Coliseum and a poison. I don't know if you remember them from the eighties, uh, was in concert. And I'm like, Oh, cool. And now part of me, because I'm a music fan, was like, ah. Oh. But then there was another part of me that I wasn't, I was supposed, I was told that I couldn't listen to secular music because secular music was bad. So I couldn't go see Poison in concert, but I could stop by at the mall and see a movie. Okay, don't even get me started on all the confusion parts of Christianity. But then I looked at it, I'm like, wait a minute. This is back before you had, you know, it was basically general admission. So everybody got in line like five hours early and you just, you know, where, wherever you could find, you, you, it was just, it was a stampede once the doors open and they kind of stopped that because of people dying through stampedes and, and all kinds of crazy things happening. But, uh, so they didn't have like reserve seating. So people got there you know, six, seven hours early and they're just in line. So I thought, wow, all these teenagers are going to be standing in line. I got a, I, I got a captive audience. So I know what I'll do. We'll, I'll grab a Bible. We'll get a big thing of tracks. And we'll just go talk, we'll just go through the line and just kind of talk to them. Hey, you know, so do you believe in God? You know, just, just ask questions. If they didn't want to talk, we would just move on to the next one. Just move on to the, just, just in the most non-confrontational, combative way possible. Uh, But we, it was me and a friend and we wanted to do it. We didn't have like, we were forced to go there. If other teenagers would have been forced to go to that event to do that, that would have been horrific for them because it was already like, it was a little intimidating to walk up to these people standing in line and just say, hey, not trying to bother you, but hey, we have this track, you know, just, and then, and if they didn't want to talk, hey, sorry, don't, don't want to have fun, enjoy the concert, you know, we weren't there. Now, what, what was bad about that is the media showed up and thought that we were protesting the concert. I'm like, not protesting music. Why would Christians show up at a concert and protest music? It makes no sense. I said, we're just encouraging people to consider the things of God, offering them a track, offering them Bible, Whatever, whatever we can do. That's all we're doing. We're not here protesting. We're not telling anyone not to go in. We're not doing anything like that. And then the media was kind of disappointed. They were like, man, we wanted protesters because that'd be good for the 10 o'clock news. Okay, but so, um, but I can't imagine. Some, some of these situations, these churches force the kids into these situations. And then you hear kids when they're older talk about how they were so embarrassed and it was like humiliating. And 
And you don't want kids to go through that. Now, if they want to, if they want to get together and go evangelize, then the parents should do everything they can to encourage so. But I've also seen parents who are like, we don't want anyone to go to hell. And then we're like, hey, uh, Marilyn Manson is in Omaha. I want to take a bunch of, if any of the teenagers want to go, I want to take the teenagers down so that we can try to minister to the people waiting in line to see Marilyn Manson. And I was told, are you out of your minds? Our kids could get hurt. And I'm like, oh, okay. I, I, I thought I thought we were worried about those who are going to hell. Never mind. Okay. So, um, but once again, it just, <laughs> the Christian's like, hey, God's in charge. God's in control. Nothing can hurt us. And we don't want anyone to go to hell unless unless our lives are at risk or someone else's lives at risk. But I understand. They're parents that were worried about it. But I did find it a little contradictory there. But uh, but at the same time, but in other situations, and the kid's forced to go, oh, that's a safe place. You will go evangelize. So in some cases, you can't go because it's dangerous. In other cases, you will go even when the kid doesn't want to. It's all over the place. Just if you have, your church has a youth soul winning program, just make sure the youth want to be there, right? They want to be there. They desire to be there, right? And if they do, support them. Even if it's just one kid, one, two kids, if it's just two, and they, they feel a need and a desire to go and, and tell people about Christ, then help them learn to be tactful, respectful, humble, godly, and give them the right instruction. Make sure they're not manipulate, manipulating people or arguing. Just respect other people's boundaries. And, and then by all means, support it. But if the other kids are like, my mom makes me be here, then it, find something for that kid to do that that won't put him in a place where he's psychologically humiliated and scarred because it's just not, it's not fair to do that. You want people who want to present the gospel, not people who've been manipulated or forced to present the gospel. Sometimes it's youth directors who are like, this is what we're doing. And sometimes when youth directors don't realize, when you say, this is what we're doing, then the parents are like, well, you're going because we're members of this church and I want to make sure my kids show up to the youth events. It's not about you, mom and dad. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's not about you. Okay. It's not about making sure everyone knows that your kids go to all the youth events. It's about your kids. Okay. Right. Okay. I know I'm, I'm getting sidetracked, but as soon as I hear youth soul winning program, I've just, oh, I got my, my mind flashes to all kinds of, of bad situations that I've witnessed, especially in the independent fundamental Baptist, Baptist world where this church would fit in. Something that you do or you don't do it at all. And there is a community around you that is dying and going to hell. Well, they just won't listen. No, they're not. It's not that they won't listen. It's they're not being told. Nobody is out there putting a track in their hand. Look at I passed out a lot of tracks in my lifetime and a lot more in the last few months. I'm going to tell you something right now. I've had only one track not get taken by somebody in the last, I honestly can say in the last probably uh, three months to say conservatively. He said, well, well, did they all get saved? No, I don't know. But my job is to give them the gospel. My job is to tell them what they need from the word of God. Your church needs you. Your church and your community has a group of people around it that need Jesus Christ. And how ashamed we ought to feel if somebody dies and goes to hell within the shadow of our steeple and we never stepped across the street to tell them about Jesus. 
If your church were to, were to dry up and blow away and disappear overnight, would your community even miss you? Would they even miss you? Would they even know you're gone? How involved are you in your soul winning? How involved are you? You adults that are sitting here, and we have around 300 adults and workers that are sitting here listening to me this morning. How involved are you in your church? Yeah, you brought your kids to a youth conference, and I'm so pleased and happy that you have. But how, how are you in the workings of your church? How are you in the soul winning of your church? I'm preaching from a Bible today that was given to a man in our church. His name's Al Urbanski. He's in heaven today. He died in 1998. But in, the, in uh, 1969, a group of teenage boys decided to go sowing. We were getting ready to start Hammond Baptist Schools in 1970, and they were the school. They were leaving their public school, and they got together and they began to pray for their public school. And these five boys got a, got a burden for souls, and they started winning people to Jesus Christ, and they started inviting other teenagers to go sowing with them. And they asked one of the men in the church named Al Urbanski, he was a construction worker, a bricklayer, worked for as a supervisor in a construction company. And they asked him if they, they would drive them out soul winning, like Josh was doing here. Josh is an engineer. And he, uh, he was like Mr. Urbanski, he... These, these, they met every Saturday, and he drove teenagers out. And Mr. Urbanski drove teenagers every Saturday, every Saturday for 25 years. About five or six years into his driving, he was given this Bible just to honor him one day. And he took this Bible, and he asked every young person that went regularly in his car, every teenage girl, to sign it. And there are dozens and dozens and dozens of signatures and stories and thank yous from these girls. And many of them are preachers' wives. And many of them, these are missionaries' wives. And some of these are, are uh, teaching in our Christian school today. But in the front of his Bible here, he has 1971. And he was a very logistical man. And he wrote 225 souls were saved in 1971 by the kids in his car. In 1970, just oh, the numbers thing, the numbers thing drives me so much crazy. Just make sure you remember you present the gospel to someone, you can never say if someone got saved or not saved because you cannot see inside a person. You can say 200 people made a profession of faith, all right? You don't know what motivated them to do that. You don't know what led them to do that. You don't, in many cases, it's all done and like just face to face. They may just say whatever to get rid of you. You don't know. I'm not a fan of like, we went out and 300 people got saved. I've, I've seen these numbers in the independent fundamental Baptist world. The teenagers went out on Saturday morning and 500 people got saved. I heard that so much in independent fundamental Baptist churches in the Omaha area that everyone in Nebraska has been saved 10 times over. Because in the 10 years there, I heard these numbers like 500, 400, 1,000, 6. I mean, it was just con like every week, numbers, 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 numbers. Now, the people who supposedly got saved never showed up at the church, never got baptized. We didn't even know their names, never heard from them again. But 300 got saved, 500 got saved, 1,000 got saved. And it's like, What? In the world, in many cases, I was with when we'd go down to the old market in Omaha, 
And I would be like, you you tell me 50 people got saved? I was down here with you. When, when did this occur? I must have missed this event because I you handed out 50 tracks. I didn't see you. What, what, what do you, are you just, you hand a track to someone, you count them as a salvation? So I'm always questioning the number saying, I know it's my cynicism. I know I'm cynical, but I, but, mm, okay. But hey, if the teenagers want to go out every Saturday, they want to do it. They're doing it on their own. If they have a burden, then by all means support it. That is awesome, awesome, awesome. Look, in every church, you do need people. You, I mean, the church's survival from a human perspective, you have to have people in the church who, look, they don't, they're, they're trying to find people to disciple. They're trying to find people to help learn how to study the Bible. They're trying to find people who don't know about Christ and finding a way to present them. They're, you have five, inviting people to church. Even from a Christian podcast perspective, you got to have people who are inviting other people to listen. That, that's, that's how things happen. So that, that is super important. And I don't want to diminish the importance of presenting the gospel, discipling people, you know, building a relationship with people so that you can uh, you can help them spiritually. All of that is absolutely essential, and every Christian should be looking for every one of those opportunities. Every Christian should. They should, and they should be challenged to do that, encouraged to do that. Just when it comes to young people, they shouldn't be forced to do that. Ministry should be something you choose to do, not something you are forced to do because of overbearing uh, Christian parents. That That's where I have some issues there. But ministry, you've got to have people in your church ministry. You've got to have, I mean, I've said it so many times. I One of the things I hate about not working is when I was in the work world, I got to minister to all kinds of people. So many people who came to my church when our church was much larger were people I worked with. People who worked with me, who I got a chance to talk about spiritual things. Once I stopped working and those people moved off, I, I, we're, I, it, because it's much easier to minister to people who you know, who you have some kind of a work relationship with. It's far easier than just walking up to a stranger. Uh, but um, I miss that because in and, and my church in Nebraska, all the people who started coming to the church I came to, I mean, there was a lot of them, all were people I worked with. And it's just like, I just found a way to have natural conversations with people about important concepts and then bring doctrine and theology and the Bible into it. In many cases, I didn't really say, hey, do you want to come to church? Usually after good spiritual conversations, sometimes they'd be like, what church do you go to? Or, or And then they, I, I t- tended to kind of make them wait to ask me more than I, I, but I wanted to engage them in spiritual conversation. We do need Christians more engaging people. We do need Christians doing that. We do need Christians who are other people focused. So the emphasis of this is good. I don't want in any way under undermine it. Now, I'm a little perplexed that he's saying he's preaching from the Bible because all he really de- did was read seven. He's not done anything with the text other than like, Jonah was sleeping, you're sleeping. And he's not even dealing with a logical issue here, right? If you don't tell people they're going to go to hell, well, then why didn't he do to me what he did to Jonah? Jonah, God got Jonah to Nineveh. Why didn't God get me to the person you're telling me is going to scream at me at judgment and scream, why didn't you tell me? If God wanted me to tell them, I would have told them because Jonah didn't have a choice. 
I mean, that would be like, he's not even dealing with that logical issue. He's not dealing with the, the text or anything else. I just find it fine. the Bible I'm preaching from, though, the Bible you read from. Okay. That's, he, he seems to be more interested now in expounding what's written in the front of the Bible than he is what's written in the book of Jonah. But that's just an observation. Two, 291, in 1973, Souls that will one day or are in heaven because a construction worker. 22,000 people will be in heaven. It's amazing how you can know that. It's just amazing. Like, man, I wish I could know that, that all the people I talked to when I was in the military, they're all in heaven. I just, I wish I, I, I could, or they will be. Uh, that's a, hmm. that's a interesting way of just that you know. I wish I could just know. I wish I could just look at people and go, hey, I talked to you. Boom. I know. I know. I know. And I can know that maybe they made a profession of faith. That's all I can know. I don't know anything else about whether conversion occurred or didn't occur. Didn't sleep. His church needed him. His church needed him. These mariners on board that ship were dying. They were, going to, they were going into the water and their lives were going to be splashed out into eternity while Jonah slept. And we have people all over our area that we could win to Jesus Christ if we had adults, if we had youth directors, if we had pastors that would help our young people get out there and win people to Jesus Christ. It was teenage soul winning that was started as an official program of our church and it began to take off and it began to grow and grow. And I remember Brother Hiles on a Wednesday night as we had several hundred teenagers going soul winning from 6 o'clock on Saturday night to 9 o'clock and we eventually changed it to noon on Saturday. But, but, but uh, these kids would come out and Brother Hiles would, would ask for 25 and 30 drivers. We need 30 drivers for teenage soul winning and he would, he would hold this service up until he got 30 people to volunteer. And it began to spread. Those, First Baptist was a soul winning church at this time, but when the young people got on fire, the church did too. When the teenagers started showing up, the adults and going out and consistently winning people to Christ, the adults really got on fire and really got on board. And the Foster Club and the Fisherman's Club and other programs really got ignited. Young people, I wonder what you could do for your church if you got on fire for soul winning. Arise, O sleeper. Your church needs you. Rise, O oh sleeper, your country needs you. We can give all the political reasons why this country is going to hell in a handbasket. But the only way to save this nation is to win souls to Christ. If you want to save this country, and I'm all for <coughs> working with our politicians, I'm all for voting, and I'm all for involvement, because I am, I, I, I enjoy it, but I think it's a responsibility but that ought not even compare to my soul winning. It ought not compare to, to my helping people find Jesus Christ. 
And young people, may God may be calling some of you men into full-time service today. And so you can spend your life in full-time service winning people to Jesus Christ. Helping young people find their way. Teaching in Christian schools and training young people to have a heart for God. And maybe pastoring a church or maybe going to a mission field. But listen to me carefully. That we're not going to help our country while we sleep. Nothing's going to be done. Nothing's going to be made right. We're snoring and just getting some Z's, taking it easy. Not my job, Brother Eddie. Not my job. I'm too shy. I don't do well in front of public. I've seen some of the most timid. I've seen some of the smallest. I've seen the most insignificant young people as, as they would think they were. Take their Bible and their New Testament. And hold it like this to somebody that was much older, much taller, much more seasoned in life than them. And point the gospel to them just like this. I got pictures of that. And I watched as I listened to them give the gospel to these men. As this little girl was just giving the plan of salvation, these men had tears coming down their face. Young people, listen to me. Your country needs you. This country needs soul winners. This country needs men of God. This country needs pastors right now. We can fill churches. Every one of the preachers that preach, that's preached up here could probably name five churches that could use a pastor right now. But we don't have them. Is it because God's not calling them? No. It's because we're sleeping. It's because the church has a garbage system of helping young people get into ministry. It's a garbage system. I, I loathe and reject everything churches do in this area. I do. It, I, I can't stand it, right? Because I was there. I was a young person like, okay, all right. I feel, I, I feel like the ministry is what I want to do. The ministry is what I want to do. The ministry is what I want to do. And nobody would help me what to do. It would n- Nobody helped me learn. Nobody helped me do anything. And it was like, basically it was like, I was going to have to come up with money to go off to, co- to, to Bible college. Well, how am I going to go to Bible college? I, I was from a, I wasn't even living with my parents. My mom died. I, I had nothing. I had no money. What was I going to, how was I going to pull this off? Nobody would help me. Nobody told me what to do. They did nothing for me. Zero. Nada. Nothing. And then, so I had to join the military so I could get money for school. And then when I find a church, then they're telling me to quit the military. They're telling me to quit the military because if I really believe God, quit the military find a job and then just serve in this church. And then I could go start a church. And I'm like, wait a minute. Wait, so I got to go start a church. There's 5,000 churches, but I have to, well, do you want it the easy way, brother? Or do you want to do it God's way? God's way is you go start a church. Uh, okay. And I need to quit the military. So I'm going to quit the military, have no income, get two or three jobs, and then go try to start a church. Oh yeah, that's going to be great for my family. It's going to be, and it's like, none of it made any, it was never, okay, here's what we do. You want to be in the ministry? Guess what? We'll start the training tomorrow. I'll start helping you with, with, you know, Bible study, hermeneutics, preaching, exegesis. I'll, I'll, I'll start, I'll, I'll let you follow whatever I'm doing so you can see how ministry works. I'm going to get you trained. I'm going to get you trained. And once you're trained, once you're trained, then I will, then this church will ordain you. And then once you are ordained, 
ordained, I will help you find a church that needs a pastor. I will be there. I will help write you a letter. I will drive you there. I will do everything. But no, 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 no. It's like, hey, you want to be in ministry? Go off to college. Get in debt. And and it's like, I don't understand. It's the most broken thing I have ever seen in my entire life. When I was at a conference in Kansas City, I was still in the military trying to figure out how this ministry thing works because nobody would tell me other than I need to quit the military, go get three jobs to support my family, and then supposedly go start a church somewhere. And I watched all the other men who were who quit the military. And then they were working like three jobs to try to, to, try to support themselves. I, I don't think any of them ever ended in ministry. None of them ever ended in ministry. It was like it was a disaster for their families and disaster for them financially. I mean, they gave up their health plan. They gave up everything. And I'm like, what is this concept? Like, there's got to be a different way. So, so I've always been like, no, the church should train. Okay, if there's any additional schooling that's needed, the church should pay for it, right? The church should help the people get that training. The church should make sure they have all their reference tools, resources that they need. The church should ordain, and then the the church should help them find a a church. If they can't find a church and they're going to start a church, then that that church, the sending church that ordained you, should then say, hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pay your salary for the first two years. We're going to help cover uh, the cost as you build the church. At the end of those two years, then that church that you start, they'll take over the financial responsibility to support you. Like, there's a million different ways to to do it, but no, 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 it's this, it's so broken. Hey, I know all these churches who need pastors. Oh, let me guess. And all the men in your church, they got to go off to Bible college for four years, bring in all kinds of debt, and then they can go try to find all those churches that supposedly need a pastor. It's just, it's so, I'm so tired of hearing the complaining about it when we, we've built this Bible college seminary industrial complex that does nothing to put people in hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt to get an education. Ministry education should be done in the local church. That's where it should be done. And if there's any specialty education needed, I got no problem the church utilizing that. But I don't like the way it's it's so just there's no plan. There's no system. There's no nothing. And, and, and I don't like the way when pastors get ready to leave a church, they just leave a church. Peace out. Boom. I'm moving on. And then that church is struggling without a pastor to find a pastor. The whole, everything about the way the church does something is so, it doesn't make any sense from the most purely humanistic. Like, that's not how businesses work. That's not how you you strengthen, quote unquote, an organization. That's not, you should have a, a system in play that helps people people who feel called to ministry to get trained and not just trained in, in an academic way and then actually learning ministry from a minister. And then they, you do everything you can to support them. So they start off in a very good place. So it doesn't de- 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 destructive to their family, to their lives. I mean, there's so many things about it, but okay. So, all right. I, I still don't, I mean, basically what he, the, the message to the young people are, you need to witness. And we're, we read Jonah. And last, arise, O oh sleeper. The world needs you. Didn't you hear, Brother Thompson? This world needs missionaries. If I may, I'm where God wants me to be. I mean that. I knew that from the time I was a teenager. 
don't get me started on on the missionary mess the way mission now not now maybe some denominations have a better structure but this is typically how it works a fan, a man decides okay god's called us to be a missionary our family we're going to go to wherever we're going to go to africa wherever okay and so guess what you have to go on deputation so what do they do they start they got to start contacting church after church after church after church after church after church can we come present our our mission field the mission field we want to go to that we feel called to they get a little film together they get the basic all the material and then they pack the family in a a, a van and go from city to city to city to city presenting their ministry hopefully that church will take them on hopefully that church will take them on guess what not only do they hope the church will take them on the church will provide them a love offering of four, five, six hundred dollars, maybe a thousand dollars, so that they can continue on deputation. So they spend two, three years on deputation, raising money to get to the mission field, where so much of that money is just trying to keep them going from city to city to city. What a broken system. What an absolutely train wreck of a system. What would be best if that local church saying, oh, you feel the call to the mission field? This church will be your sending church, We'll get you on the mission field and we will support you. There you go. Make it fast, make it quick. Now, some churches say, well, we can't support that. Maybe you can, maybe you can't. But if you can't, then that church should do everything they can to help them get to the churches they need to. Like, like there's got to be a better system. There's got to be a better system. There's got to be a better system. But the whole deputation thing is like, I, I can't stand it because, like, if a, if, a, if someone comes to my church, okay, well, we're already a small church. So, first of all, it's going to cost them to get to our church. Then you got to go, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, we got to give them an offering. All right, so that's a thousand dollars out of our, our 500 dollars. I mean, you feel like you got to give them at least a thousand dollars just to try to keep them going, right? I mean, if you just throw a couple of hundred, they probably didn't even pay for their food, gas, and a hotel. Like, like. No, I got to give them at least $1,000 to make sure they're taken care of, right? So that get, so we just gave them $1,000. That doesn't get them to the mission field. That's $1,000 that just gets them where? To the next church to basically beg another church for money. And then they give them $1,000 so that they can get to another church. And then we say, okay, we'll give you $25 a month. Well, how many thousands of dollars have to be given to them just to get enough churches giving them $25, $50 a month so they can finally get into the mission field? All of those churches giving them $1,000. If Like, we, we, we should, there's got to be a better system. The whole thing is just so broken and the way that works. I cannot stand the way that works in any way, shape, or form. Didn't know I would be working here, but when I got the job while I was in college... I knew this is where God wanted me. I took a missions trip. I took a missions trip to the Philippines one, one, uh, one year. And uh, several of us had gone and, and uh, walked into a mountain, remote mountain village 12 miles in. Slept on a rice mat in a Nepo hut. When they shut the generator off that night, you literally couldn't see your hand in front of your face. But I remember laying there and just the tears flowing side of my face. And I said, God, if you ever called me here, I'd come. I know I'm where, you're, where I'm supposed to be, but if you ever called me here, I'd come. I took my first missions trip to Monterey, Mexico. Took about 25 of our teenagers. We took a bus down there. 
And I'd never been on a missions trip before, but I remember this in a very short story. Remember the Tommy Ashcraft, we went to his, his church and his school. And in a little bit of an indoctrination, he got up in front of our group and he said, if you're not surrendered to be a missionary, you're not right with God. Well, I'm sitting there thinking, where does he get off saying that? I didn't know him real well. And he began to speak and he said, I'm not saying, these were his next words, by the way. He said, I'm not saying God will call you because you just may not be good enough. And that really incensed me. And I thought, what does he mean by that? He said, look, you may not supposed to be a missionary, but you ought to be willing to be. You ought to be begging God, hey, if you want me there, like a kid on the bench on the basketball team, hey, coach, come on, can I get in? Coach, can I play? Coach, can you put me in? I didn't go to practice. I didn't go to, uh, and work out, and I didn't do all the drills just to sit the bench. I want to get in the game. But you know, when it comes to serving Christ, when it comes to being a missionary, when it comes to being a preacher, we got to beg you, we got to entice you, we got to scream at you, and we got to shake you and say, hey, please, come, I'm begging you. There's a country that needs you, there's a world that needs you. We got places and countries and towns all over the world that don't know anything about Jesus Christ. Does anyone else struggle with the contradiction in the book that he's preaching from, from the message he's preaching? The book says God will get the person to the mission field. You're saying we've got to shake you. We've got to beg you. We've got to do everything. Come on. You've got a world that needs you. Okay, well, wait a minute. None of that needed to happen with Jonah. God's like, I need someone to preach to Nineveh. You're it. You're going. No, I'm not. No, you're going. You have no choice in the matter. Your will does not trump my will, you're going. Even if I have to deliver you there through the mouth of a great fish. Or, now now we did have that one sermon that says he wasn't actually delivered at Nineveh. He was delivered back at where he started and then he had to get on a boat to go back to Nineveh. I still haven't worked that out yet to see if that's accurate. Remember that sermon we reviewed that said that God uh, God swallowed him with a fish and took him back where he started so he could get back on a boat to go back and have us, I'm still trying to see if my understanding of the story is incorrect, but, but, but of course, in this sermon, we're not going to find out. Um, well, that's true. He just implied that they're not right with God because he implied to be right with God, you must basically be fully willing, but yet he has to beg them. That's confusing. Well, you have to beg them because clearly they're not fully willing. So <laughs> you got to beg them to be fully willing. And then if they, I, I guess, I don't know. But, um, man, okay, I'm just, I'm just, I'm perplexed that he chose the book of Jonah for this kind of message because the book of Jonah says God's going to get his message to where he wants it with his chosen messenger, irregardless of the will of the messenger. But then he's taking a book saying, you've got to be willing. Well, it sounds like God's going to get you there, whether you're willing or not willing. Like, so, so why is he not Taking, when is he not explaining his message in light of the book? Because he's not preaching the book. Once again, we have a sermon that gets in way of the text. The sermon is, he's not preaching Jonah. He's not preaching the text. He's got a philosophical message about evangelism, and he's preaching that disguised as a sermon about Jonah. All right, we got like five minutes left. Here we go. 
And the one thing that all missionaries are begging for is help. 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 But we sleep as literally as the world burns. I saw when I was in Mexico people that were just like us, just poor. Geography and basically political leadership was the only difference between our countries. But when, when we took the Bible and we went out for the first time as our group had learned the plan of salvation in Spanish, and between 25 of us and, and about half a dozen interpreters that went with us, we won over 225 people to Christ. And in, tra- in our frail way, presenting the gospel, these people were just, were just weeping. That, that, and the, many of them we, we, we preached to and, and, and gave the gospel to had never even seen an American. And they were just weeping and just so, so impressed that an American would be telling them how they can go to heaven. And I'll tell you what, it gripped the hearts of our young people. And every missionary trip that I took. I, I know, I know I sound jaded. I know, but I've heard these stories a billion times. You know, we went here and a thousand people got saved. And we went here and 500 people got saved. And we went here, a hundred people got saved. And it's always these stories. It's like, well, okay. Now, was a church established? But is there, like, did they get baptized? Or did you just show up, boom, hand them a track, they got saved, boom, we're out of here. Did you send a, I mean, if that many people got saved in one area, did you not send a pastor? Did you, one of those, I mean, like, what, what, what was the, I just, I hear the stories, but you never hear the follow-up. You never hear, like, what supposedly happens after, but it's always like, we went here and people were like, they were weeping and they were crying and they were like, so, and I know I shouldn't be cynical. It's just, I've heard these stories so many times. By this point, the whole world has been saved 9 million times. Remember, go back to Finney, Charles Finney. Oh, everybody was getting saved. Everybody was getting saved. Everybody was getting saved. And what what was that district where he did all of his evangelism called after it was all over? Called the burned over district. Because after it was all said and done, nobody seemed to be saved. And it was burnt over because nobody was willing to really open or even cared about the gospel after it. There's been books written about the situation. After supposedly people were falling down, weeping, crying, factory stopped work. I heard all the stories about Finney. <laughs> I mean, I've so, so many times you hear all of this and you're like, well, when it was all said and done, what did you end up with? What, what did you end up with? What, what was there? Was there a church established? Was there, what, what, what was left? And it's like, there's never like, when you find out what was left out, it's usually like, well, so, I mean, are we interested in telling stories or are we interested in really ministry? I mean, I, look, I wish it was true that you take 25 kids, boom, hundreds of people are saved and boom, it's just amazing. But I, I don't know. I know several of the young men have been called to the mission field and ladies as well because they saw that it wasn't that far away. They saw they could be there by plane in five hours. They saw that the people were receptive of the gospel. They saw that people's hearts and lives felt pain just like theirs. I would be interested where people are who are five hours away from America 
by plane. Um, I've never seen in America. It would be interesting which part of uh, Sometimes I hear the, I, again, I've just heard so many missionary stories, and sometimes I'm just like, wait, what? What? Wait, what are you? What? Okay, I know, I know, I know. I question everything. I sh- I'm not trying to. It's just, man, these stories. It's like, could you just preach the book of Jonah for crying out loud? Okay, but it, it's he's preaching his stories. He's preaching his accomplishments more than he's preaching Jonah's accomplishment. Okay, it, is that a fair assessment? And they saw people with no hope and no future if they didn't know Jesus Christ. And they woke up. And they woke up. Brother Torres, you've taken probably more missions trips with young people than anybody I know. And he would vouch for the fact that this world needs, needs missionaries. This world needs people like you. The ship was breaking apart. The young people, the, the, the mariners on board were scared to death. The only hope was in the bottom of that ship. Fast asleep. Fast asleep. I mean, how wicked. How wicked. Not even up there helping them throw stuff overboard. Not even concerned for their life, let alone his. Jonah was their only hope. Not the God who was causing the storm, right? Okay, okay, all right. Young people, I'm begging you, as it was said earlier this week, your life serving God is the best way you could possibly spend your life. You say, well, I've seen it be really hard sometimes, and I watch it. Every, every life is going to have some difficult days, but no life is going to be as blessed as somebody who gives it to Jesus Christ. And you will look back at your life and you'll wish one day that you had more days to give God. you wish you had more time to serve Him. And I don't care how much you serve God, you wish you had more. Let alone those of you that will spend much of your young, young days and much of your 30s running from God and then fleeing to a Tarshish and sleeping in the bottom of ships. And maybe one day God will wake you up. I wish you'd wake up today. Well, you can wish that they can wake up, but if it's God that wakes them up, then you can't wake them up because God is the one who wakes them up. So then why are you trying to wake them up? I I, I don't know. I believe in youth. I believe in you. I really do. And I wish I had your youth today. I wish I could go back and start all over and, uh, and live another life so that I can give another life to the Lord. That's not a prideful and arrogant statement. It is something that I, I know that I will cherish once I get to heaven. When I, Al Urbanski and I look at this Bible, he is not here on this earth to, to read it right now. But I know he's in heaven thinking, wow, I, uh, I laid brick for a living. I instructed men on how to build walls and, and to line blast furnaces in Gary, Indiana. <clears throat> but man, you know what? The kids in my car, the people that I led to Christ, won 22,320. 22 people to Jesus Christ. He didn't sleep. I asked him, I said, Mr. Bansky, how do your kids win so many people? He says, I don't know. I said, what do you do? 
He said, well, at least, at least once a week and most time three times a week on my way home from work. I go to South Chicago. And I drive around the area and ask God where I'm supposed to go on Saturday with the kids. A construction worker. Here we go. Extra biblical revelation. God's going to tell you where to go. Oh, man, alive. Okay. He said, then I pray. I drive the streets and I pray. And I ask God to work in their heart. And brother, I don't know what to tell you, but when we go, the girls get out and they just win people right and left. Young people, are you asleep tonight? And you know how many stories from this church in Hammond, Indiana, that I've heard? I mean, if you go back to, go all the way back to the days of Jack Hiles being the pastor of Hammond, Indiana, First Baptist Church in Hammond, Indiana, it's like insane numbers. Hundreds of thousands of people in South Chicago have supposedly have been saved like a hundred times over. Chicago should be the buckle of the Bible belt. Chicago, South Chicago should be like a bastion of biblical Christianity. And, and, and I'm not, and I, and look, I will say this and I don't, and I will get a little angry. I've heard them say time and time again, the thousands and 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 thousands of people saved in Chicago because of Hiles Anderson College and First Baptist Church, Hammond, Indiana. They have evangelized over and over and over and over and over and over and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands. Well, then why isn't Chicago some bastion of Christianity? If they just hop out of the car and boom, they're just winning people left and right and left and right. They're just, they're just, this is just, it just immediately they get out of the car and people start getting saved. Well then, then man, I mean, we should just send a busload of Christians to South Chicago and immediately like everyone in the city should get saved. Like they're getting saved so fast. We don't have enough people to evangelize them. Well, you've been evangelizing them since the days of Jack Hiles. Chicago should be like, where is the center of Christianity in America? It is Chicago. I mean, at some point you got to say, what, what do you, you keep making claims. Where's the, where, I mean, there's got to be something, right? There's got to be something. And Al Urbanski can win more people to Jesus Christ than most preachers I've ever met. I wonder what you could do. I wonder what you could do. Arise, O sleeper. Arise, O sleeper. Call upon thy God. Somebody, somebody's getting tossed about today. Would you sit up straight, backs against your chairs? I don't even want you to bow your heads. I just want you to close your eyes. I'm going to ask grace and truth if you'd go back to the platform, if you would. I want you to sing this song again for the cause of Christ. And while you sing that song, young people, would you think about it? Would you think about the kids that live down the street? Would you think about your friends? Young lady sitting in here today, graduated from public school a few weeks ago. Got to decorate her graduation cap. She boldly put on there John 3.16. Hey, are you willing to tell somebody about Jesus Christ? How many say with your 
eyes closed, say, Brother Little Pina, the word of God spoke to my heart. The word of God spoke to your heart. You, you slaughtered the text, man. You turned it into some kind of allegorical thing that the people on the boat needed Jesus and Jonah was sleeping and he woke up and he went up there and told them about Jesus and they all got saved. They threw him overboard for crying out loud. Okay. <laughs> oh, I... I there, there's the preaching. That's that's what young people are getting. Young people are getting preached a book that demonstrates that God will get the messenger to the people He wants them to be to get he, to get it to, with or without their will, and then that is turned into people are going to go to hell because you didn't tell them, and to you need to wake up because don't be a sleeper like Jonah was a sleeper, and. Uh, because the boat's being tossed to and fro, and you can help the boat boat not be tossed to and fro because you tell them about Jesus, even though it, well, it, it, no, he had to go overboard. He had to go overboard. But, but I, I guess that that's, I don't know. The whole book of Jonah is just some symbol for evangelism. I, I don't know. But uh, guess what the t- kids did not learn? They did not learn Jonah chapter one. They didn't learn it. They didn't learn how to handle it. They didn't study it. They didn't do anything. But they got a lot of kind of guilt about it. And so I, I, is that what young people need in 2022? Well, there we have it. Another visit to Gary, uh, to Gary, Indiana. See, he mentioned Gary, Indiana. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking music. So we won't get into a whole music discussion about Gary, Indiana. We won't go there. Okay. But Hammond, Indiana, which I'm assuming Handy and Hammond, Indiana, is it got to be close to Chicago? Because they're always talking about evangelism in Chicago. Um, I guess, is there no one in Indiana to evangelize? Because they always talk in Chicago. Anytime I listen to sermons about Hammond, Indiana, they're always talking about, or Hiles Anderson, um, they're always talking about Chicago. I'd have to look. We, we got people who, who live in Indiana. Maybe they have a clue. But um, there you have it. I don't know what else to say. I mean, we weren't really able to get into, hey, the text, and no, the text means this, because there was no, all these sermons have been so oblivious to the actual text. All of these sermons have used the text in a roundabout way. Okay, so someone just said, I think Hammond is close to Chicago. Yeah, it has to be. It has to be. But all of these sermons have literally, I, I don't even know what to, I don't know how you describe what they've done with the text. If someone comes up with a clever way, to describe what these sermons have done to the text of Scripture, I would love to hear your concise, clever way of saying this is what they do to the Scriptures because it is insane to me. I'm baffled by it. I am baffled. But there we go. We're an hour and 29 minutes. We're going to keep listening, finding out what we should be teaching young people in 2022. I don't know what that's called other than, hey, guys, this is this is how I would summarize their message. Hey, if you don't tell people they're going to go to that about Jesus, they're going to go to hell and it's your fault. So wake up and go tell people about Jesus. And I'm going to teach you that from the book of Jonah. <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you for listening. You can email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. You know what? I, you know what I feel like at the end of all of these? That I wasted your time and my time. And I hate that I get to the end of this and I feel like I wasted your time and my time. But in a roundabout way, maybe that's the best lesson I can give you because it shows what young people are being taught in 2022 at supposedly the most influential youth conference in the country. 
And if we feel like that our time has been wasted, are you telling me church is wasting young people's time? Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a great day. God bless.